of Genesis this evening in the chapter 15, the book of Genesis in the chapter 15. We're entering into the chapter at the verse 12, Genesis in the chapter 15, beginning our reading in the verse 12. Word of God says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And I shall go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it are reading there at the end of verse 16. So as we come to the word of the Lord tonight, we do so after, of course, looking at the context and indeed the content of the Abrahamic covenant in our last studies together. But tonight we are beginning to move from the Abrahamic covenant and move toward the Mosaic Covenant. And as we have identified in uh, our previous studies together in the Abrahamic Covenant, we identified the covenant to be that of a vast nature. It contained within it much that continues right throughout the Word of God. And as true as that is for the Abrahamic Covenant, well, we identify a a similar truth in the Mosaic Covenant also. That which we will come to consider in the next number of weeks is a theme which dominates the remainder of Old Testament Scripture. And so, without doubt, it's an important theme. Without doubt, it is a theme which plays a significant part in the plan of God for the ages. But as we begin tonight, we come back to this 15th chapter of Genesis, and in doing so, we see very clearly of what God foretells as He delivers the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. For in verse 13, He says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, shall serve them, they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance." Now, according to God's prophecy here, we see the nation would in days to come be found in a land that is not their own, would in that land be treated as strangers, and ultimately serve at the will of the people of that land. This period then would be brought to an end as God judged the nation to whom the Israelites were in bondage to and brought forth the nation of Israel with great substance. Now, notice the wording that we find there at the verse 13, the beginning of it. It says, know of a surety. And therefore, immediately we ask the question, did what God says here in chapter 15, did it come to pass just as He said it would? For as we behold this Abrahamic covenant, we see then in this passage that there is built into it a test a test which would prove whether or not that all that God promised and prophesied of would actually come to pass just as He said it would. This is an important test. 
For whilst identifiable in the immediate aftermath of the giving of this covenant, nevertheless it proves to us that in the omniscience of God, he knew that some of the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant would take generations to fulfill. And I suggest to you then that in order to provide a firm basis for Abraham to be confident in God's, uh, God's ability to perform that which he promised to do, in order for Abraham's seed to be confident in God's ability to perform that which he promised to do, and in order then also for you and I to be confident in God's ability to do that which he promised to do, God himself inserted a test which would, which would provide the certainty required. And so tonight we come to mark that test. And this is not perhaps like it was back in the school days where you shared your test with a mate and it was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Or maybe that was just in Balamoney, the Lurgan people are a little bit more noble and a bit, little bit more upstanding than that. But we got through our tests by favors, you know what I'm saying? That's how we did it in school. But this is not the kind of test that we're applying today because we want to ask two rigid questions. Do the events which make up the history of the nation of Israel testify to the fulfillment of what God speaks to Abraham of? And was it done exactly the way that God said it would be done? That's the two tests that we're applying right throughout our considerations tonight. And I tell you the answer straight up. It's an easy test. The answer is yes. But we're now going to look at the proof even for that simple answer that we state. So let us notice firstly a prophecy with precision. A prophecy with precision. Come across to Genesis in the chapter 46. Genesis in the chapter 46. Keep your finger in Genesis in the chapter 15. We'll be referring back to it at various stages uh, through the course of the evening. But we are progressing through the Scriptures as we make our way from the time of Abraham and come to the time of Moses. And so we're entering here to Genesis in the chapter 46, and we begin our reading then in the verse 1. The Word of God tells us, Israel, that being Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him. And so immediately here in chapter 46, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of God's word. Jacob, who is now identified, of course, as Israel, together with his sons and their families, leave behind the land of Canaan and go down into Egypt. Now, undoubtedly, the reasons for this move were legitimate. A famine was known. And Joseph, the long-lost son, the long-lost brother, now sits as a type of prime minister in the land. 
He is in charge, of course, of providing sufficient food for all who dwell in the land. And so that making that decision to go down into Egypt was a pragmatic one, was the necessary one to make when faced with the reality of famine, when faced with the inability of themselves to provide that which they needed. Nevertheless, as they come into Egypt, they do so as outsiders. They enter the land as strangers. We see this because even the very way of their life was strange to the Egyptians. Come across to verse 31 of the same chapter. And Joseph said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come unto me. And the men are shepherds, for their trade hath been to feed cattle, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. It shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and shall say, What is your occupation? That ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now. Both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians." And so identify within those words there the understanding that as Israel and his sons enter into the land, they are regarded as strangers not only because they come from the land of Canaan, but because their whole way of life, their whole existence is that which is, that which is strange to the Egyptian people. And so beyond any dispute, we see a fulfillment of the early part of Genesis chapter 15 and the verse 13, where God says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in, the la- in a land that is not theirs. God begins to fulfill his word. Remember also the immediate context of all we read here, because you and I come to it with the benefit of hindsight. And we see, of course, that Every step of this is guided by God. Every step offers proof of God fulfilling His Word. Indeed, that's the testimony of Joseph himself, is it not? Just a couple of chapters over in Genesis in the chapter 50. For after the passing of his father and his brothers sent word unto him, seeking to know whether or not his, uh, uh, his mind would be against them or his heart would be toward them after the passing of his father, note the words of Joseph there in the verse 18, where his brethren also went, fell down before his face. They said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph here himself is testifying that his steps, the steps of his father, the steps of his brothers have all been guided and directed by Almighty God. God has been in control. And so right here at the outset of this, of our analysis of all that God speaks of to Abraham in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, we see that God is beginning to work out all things after the counsel of his own will. We see God fulfilling his word. We see God at work even when things seem like they are extraordinary or indeed outside of his control. And keep that thought in mind as we continue through this evening. Now, the story progresses, 
And as we come to the next stage of our test, we're looking, of course, for a situation change. We're looking for strangers who once were welcome to now know a change of circumstances and to find themselves unwelcome in the very same place. And did that happen? We'll come across to Exodus in the chapter 1 and read in the verse 7 and the verse 8. The Bible tells us the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. So the Bible alerts us to this truth. A new king comes to the throne. A new dynasty arises. And unlike his predecessors, this king no longer feels indebted to Joseph, no longer views the family of Joseph, that being the nation of Israel, as being welcome in the land over which he is king. Notice how that plays out then in the reality of the Jew and of the Israelite. Come to verse 9, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more, are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to suffer with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. So from welcome guests, we now see a nation who are slaves. From those who were welcome to sojourn to thou, those who were viewed as a threat and must then be placed under servitude of those in whose land they dwelt. And mark very clearly then another fulfillment of all that God said unto Abraham. For the Israelites not only were now dwelling in a land in which they were strangers, but were also in bondage and slavery to the people of that land. But there's more to see. So come across to chapter 2 and we read in the verse 23. Came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And so further evidence is given to us there in verse 23 to substantiate all that is spoken of in chapter 1. And carry on down into chapter 3 and the verse 7 for the final piece of evidence if you need it. And it tells us there in the verse 7 of chapter 3, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, 
for I know their sorrows. And note there the fulfillment of the words that God gives at the end of verse 13 in Genesis chapter 15. Not only are they strangers, not only are they servants, but they are now a people afflicted. God passes the test. Well, how about verse 14? Also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Afterwards shall they come out with great substance. Are the people in captivity? Are the people knowing affliction? Yes. Is that the end of their story? Of course not. For God very clearly in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 15 says that he will judge the nation of Egypt. So we come to Exodus in the chapter 7. Exodus in the chapter 7. The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he shall send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I will multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. And Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron was fourscore and three years old when they spake unto Pharaoh. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then I shall t- say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so, as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt they also did in like manner with their enchantments, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. In this chapter, note the beginning of God's judgment upon the nation of Egypt. From chapter 7 right through to the end of chapter 12, we see time and again God executing judgment upon the ungodly, upon the nation of Egypt. We know, of course, that ten plagues fall. Plagues which brought misery and devastation upon the Egyptians. Plagues which manifested the power of Yahweh and the impotency of the gods of Egypt. You consider plague number one. It was the turning of the Nile into blood. God said, by this ye will know that I am God. Plague number two was frogs from the Nile. And they invaded every home in Egypt. And then they died and their stink hung in the air. Plague number three was lice. 
And this was a plague which came about because of a miracle that came from God which was not able to be replicated by the magicians of Egypt the first time it had happened in this sequence of events. Plague number four was flies. Flies prevailed all over Egypt, in their homes, on their bodies, all over their food. But in this plague, God also placed a very clear dividing line between the Egyptian and the Israelite. For the Israelite knew knew no flies. God said that I mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Plague number five was the death of all Egyptian livestock. Plague number six was boils in the flesh of all Egyptians. Plague number seven then brings us to a part of the judgment which God brings upon Egypt in that he says all that will happen in the sequence of events to follow will be more severe than that which has already happened. So plague number seven was hail falling from the the sky and fire running along the ground. And all that was exposed to these two supernatural occurrences perished. Men, animals, crops, trees. Why? Well, hear the words of God that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Plague number eight brought locusts upon the face of the land. And such was the number that they darkened the sky. The nation, known as the breadbasket of the world, knew all of its crops devastated, all of the fruit of its trees uh, totally ruined, all of its produce gone, consumed. Plague number nine brought darkness. Three days the Israelites had light, but three days the Egyptians had no light, total darkness. Plague number 10 then saw the firstborn meal of every home where the blood was not applied to the door door frame die. The only protection was the blood. The application of the blood of an innocent unblemished lamb to the door of the house in which the family resided. And so very clearly in the chapter 7 through 12 of the book of Exodus, God provides us with abundant proof that the Almighty God, the God who maketh covenant, the God who keepeth covenant, He passes the test. There's one more thing, of course, that we must see if all of the words that He spake unto Abraham are to be validated. Remember, this is a test that God himself inserts into this covenant. And so we must see deliverance. We must see freedom. We'll come to chapter 12 and read in the verse 31. Chapter 12 and the verse 31. This is the immediate aftermath of plague number 10. The dying of the firstborn meal within each of the households of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. 
And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Now in this passage, we see the final fulfillment that we need to see a completion of all that God promises in verse 13 and verse 14 of Genesis chapter 15. For not only do we see deliverance, but we see deliverance with abundance. And God blesses the people, and they who went down because of a great need come out with much more than they ever entered in with. And God was faithful to His Word, And the precision and the prophecy that God gives to Abraham passes the test as we come to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so the refrain that we've repeated from our very first study, our God is a covenant-keeping God, remains true. But we come to consider another theme tonight. For we not only see the precision in the prophecy but we see the pain in the prophecy. All of the events that we have simply skimmed over tonight involve suffering for the Israelite people. The change in their experience began with a change of leader. But the suffering and the pain that this change brought continued long after that new dynasty emerged. The people of Israel, we're told, were afflicted. Chapter 1, verse 11. They were made to serve with rigor. Chapter 1, and the verse 13. Their lives were made bitter. The verse 14. Their baby boys were murdered. Verse 16. In chapter 2, in the verse 11, we see Moses identified them as a people with a burden. Because of this burden, they felt overwhelmed. And they sighed, according to chapter 2, in the verse 23. They cried, and they groaned, according to verse 24. And so understand that as we see God's plan unfolding, And God doing exactly what He had promised to do, God fulfilling His Word, we also see a people experiencing pain. We see a people suffering misery as this plan unfolds. As God's plan continues to unfold, come with me to chapter 5 of the book of Exodus. Their immediate reality, of course, as we enter into this book, we've already summarized. Pain, suffering, groaning, crying, sighing. But notice in chapter 5 that as perhaps hope emerges, that deliverance might be just around the corner. See how their experience becomes 
that little bit more bitter. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Come to verse 6. Pharaoh says no. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tail of the bricks which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get your straw where ye can find it. Yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hasted them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, Wherefore have ye not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today as heretofore? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? There is no straw given unto thy servants, and they say to us, Make brick, and behold, thy servants are beaten, but the fault is in thine own people. But he said, Ye are idle. Ye are idle. Therefore ye say, Let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you, yet ye shall deliver the tale of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were in evil case. After it was said, Ye shall not many shot from your bricks of your daily task. And they met Moses and Aaron, who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh, and they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. And so here we see evidence of what? Things going from bad to worse. And the suffering that they knew day, each and every day now seems to be amplified. And the pain and the misery that they experience as their days progress now seems to be amplified. This is all according to the plan of God. This is all because Almighty God deemed it to be so. Friends, you may be here tonight and you identify with this truth. God is at work in this generation. God is at work in your life. And yet His plan, as it's unfolding before your eyes, as His work is progressing, real life pain and suffering is your reality. 
Perhaps for you, God's plan involves physical pain, sickness, or chronic illness. Each and every day you struggle to do even the very simplest of tasks. Perhaps for you it's emotional pain and suffering. A key relationship has broken down. You deal with the wreckage and the carnage and the scars of all that has happened. Perhaps you battle your own thoughts, your own emotions. Perhaps you're someone who tonight is looking well and fit on the outside, but on the inside everything's a mess. Life and its pressures have become unbearable. Your purpose in life, well, that's hard to identify. Your motivation for continuing on is hard to identify. Perhaps for you it's the loss of someone special or someone's special. And you come under the sound of the preaching of God's Word tonight, and you identify with the children of Israel and their pain and their suffering as God's plan is being unfolded in their generation, and you say, yes, that's me. The body blows of life have come one after another, and they just keep coming. And I don't know how I'm going to keep going. I don't know if I even want to be here anymore. And yes, yes, I know that I'm a child of God. And yes, I know that I'm the heir of exceeding great and precious promises. But the reality is, my life's just full of suffering. God may be working out His plan. He may be working out His plan, yes, even in my life, even in my circumstances. But you know, tonight as I'm here, Tonight, as I sit under the sound of the preaching of God's Word, I'm sighing inside. I'm groaning. I'm crying out to a God who I can't see right now. A God whose presence I'm struggling to identify in my suffering. If that is you tonight then, friend, can I encourage you to take heart? To hold on to the words so often repeated already in this study. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. You might say, well, how does that help? How does that provide comfort? How does that give me encouragement in the midst of all this pain and suffering? Well, I want us to notice thirdly the purpose in the pain. There was a purpose in the pain. And I believe it true to say that there still is purpose in pain to this very hour. I think we all agree that as we have made our way through the early chapters of Genesis, or Exodus in a very brief and quick manner, we nevertheless have 
together identified a people of great need. Began with affliction in chapter 1. It culminates in chapter 2 with sighing and crying and groaning. Come back to chapter 2 and read those verses with me one more time. It came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now in verse 23, we identify a people who are most certainly at their wit's end. One king has died. Another has come to power, but yet their circumstances remain unchanged. And so they sighed. And so they cried. But notice how verse 23 ends. For their cry comes up unto the Lord. This wasn't a wasted effort on their behalf. This wasn't a wasted effort when it comes to how God responded. For as they cried, that cry, that prayer of their heart came up unto the Lord. And notice how in verse 24, the Word of God records these powerful, hope-filled words. God heard their groaning. The all-powerful God of heaven who at that very moment was fulfilling his word and working out his plan, he heard his people cry. Tonight that very fact should encourage our hearts. Because whilst you may be here tonight, burdened down with a great burden, you may be sighing and crying because of the reality of pain and suffering day by day in your life, but tonight view the Word of God and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God hears your cry. He hears your groaning. And that very truth means that you are in a vastly superior position to all of the other religions of this world. Because your cry tonight is heard by a living God. And while many worship gods fashioned by the hands of men, Gods who bear the appearance of men are created beings. These gods of this world all share one common trait, for they're all without life. They're all dead. But friend, we pray to a God who had no beginning and who has no ending. A God who is described as a spirit and so knows nothing of human appearance but yet a God who still describes His work in terms with which we identify. And so whilst not having ears, He hears. And whilst not having a physical heart like we do, yet He still has love and compassion toward us. Whilst not having eyes, He looks upon us. 
And whilst not having a brain in which memory is stored, he remembers all that he has promised to do. And that truth should surely be enough to encourage our hearts. To think that God hears and sees and loves and remembers. I tell you, that's why Peter said the prophets inquired and searched diligently. I tell you, that's why the very angels of glory desire to look into what we have. This treasure that we possess in these earthen vessels, this knowledge, this access, this right of approach, this acceptance we have before a thrice holy God. This great privilege of being objects of God's great love, His mercy, and His grace. So tonight you may be here and you may be downcast in your spirit. You may be downtrodden in your life. But mark the Scriptures well. God hears your groaning. God remembers His promise. God sees you in your plight and great need. And God has compassion upon you. No matter what you're going through. And as you mark those scriptures, then remember this. Because these great privileges which are ours to enjoy, which are ours to claim, which are yours tonight to take great encouragement from, they're all because one day he didn't hear. One day He didn't look. One day, he was not moved to action. For tonight, we must understand that as God's own dear Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, bled and died upon that cross there on Calvary's hill, God the Father was silent. God the Father was silent when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father did not look upon his sufferings. No, he turned his very back upon his own dear son. Why? Because cursed was every man who hung on a tree. And as the God-man there upon that cross hung and suffered in our room instead, he was banished so that we would forever know and enjoy the fullness of the presence of God. God the Father in that hour was not moved to come to His aid nor to His rescue. Why? Because the Paschal Lamb had to die. Because He's a covenant-keeping God. His promise necessitated that Christ would die The fulfillment of His Word meant that He must suffer in the sinner's place. His holiness and His justice demanded that Christ bore the wrath of Almighty God. So tonight, no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark the hour may be in your life, recognize that His hour was darker still. No matter how intense the pain may be, recognize that his pain was greater still. No matter how real the feelings of separation 
even loneliness, or the very forsaking of God may be. Understand that Christ died alone. He was separated from the Father. And God did forsake him in that moment. And this all means, friend, tonight that you are heard. That you are seen. That you are loved. And that you are someone to whom God remembers all he has promised to do. You are never alone. Yea, though I walk through the very valley of the shadow of death, I will fear none evil. For thou art with me. You're never alone. And the covenant made with Abraham was remembered. The test was passed. God provided for his people. The need was met. Because he's a covenant-keeping God. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless his word to our hearts tonight. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer.
Father, we praise Thee and we thank Thee for the one who is that friend who sticketh closer than any earthly brother, the one who is with us each and every step of life's journey here below. And we thank Thee, Father, that no matter what today has brought, no matter what tomorrow we bring, never changes the reality that we are loved with an everlasting love. And Thy presence and Thy peace is that which truly goes with us. We're thankful, Father, that the psalmist could record, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Oh, Lord, we're thankful that that has been true up until now, and that truth will carry us home. Oh, Father, depart us now with thy blessing. Help us to be encouraged in our own hearts. Help those who are truly cast down and downtrodden in life to be born on eagles' wings. We're thankful that thou art the one who stirs us up, but also bears us up. And we praise thee and we thank thee for this. Take us to our homes now in safety. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.